Good evening. It's Christmas Eve, and I'm Paul DiRienzo with this WBAI News Roundup. The United States says 200 truckloads of aid entered the Gaza Strip Sunday for the first time since a seven-day truce in the 10-week war on Gaza, State Department spokesperson Matt Miller. On Sunday, Karim Shalom, a crossing between Israel and Gaza, opened for the first time for the movement of aid into Gaza. The opening of this additional crossing, which we had been working to achieve for some time, will alleviate the strain on Rafah and dramatically expand the amount of aid flowing to innocent Palestinian civilians who need it most. 80 trucks entered Gaza through Karem Shalom alone yesterday, while the other 120 or so trucks entered Gaza through Egypt's Rafah crossing. Meanwhile, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was in Israel for the second time since October 7th. The visit comes after a speech where Austin warned Israel that continued attacks on civilians might become a strategic defeat for the Jewish state. On Monday, he met with his Israeli counterpart, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, and restated U.S. support while calling for more aid to Gaza. Protecting Palestinian civilians in Gaza is both a moral duty and a strategic imperative. So we will continue to stand up for Israel's bedrock right to defend itself. And we will also continue to urge the protection of civilians during conflict and to increase the flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. Gallant doubled down on Israel's determination to destroy Hamas. This is a war of national determination and national resilience. We will prevail because we are fighting for the right values for our survival in this region. What Gaza will look like the day after the war ends has been a sticking point between the partners, with Israel seeking a military occupation. State Department spokesperson Matt Miller was asked Monday what would happen if Hamas won an election in Gaza after the war. We support free and fair elections. I think you can't okay, really well, hold an election. The election in a, free and fair, and, free and fair was in Gaza, and Hamas won. And we support free and fair elections going forward. I think you can't hold an election in the middle of a conflict. Obviously, there need to, needs to be a transition process to establish that. that but that's that's what we support for the Palestinian people, as we do for anyone in the world. Palestinian commentators say Israel might be planning to separate Gaza into three zones, separated by buffers, similar to the situation in the West Bank. On Sunday, two Christian women, a mother and daughter, were shot and killed by an Israeli sniper as they walked to a convent of nuns in the compound of the Holy Family Parish in Gaza. Pope Francis spoke about the shooting today, equating Israel with terrorism. Qualcuno dice è il terrorismo, è la guerra. Sì, è la guerra, è il terrorismo. The Pope said unarmed civilians are the objects of bombings and shootings, even inside the Holy Family Parish complex, where there are no terrorists but families, children, people who are sick or disabled, nuns. And in national news, at a rally in New Hampshire on Saturday, former President Donald Trump made an ugly statement he's made before about immigrants, but he added a racialist twist. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world they're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. They're pouring into our country. Nobody's even looking at them. They just come in. The author of This Happened Here is Paul Street. What I think is a little different here is that he specified Africa and Asia and South America. So if there's any doubt that this was racialized, right? That he was, that when he's saying immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country, that that's racialized, that doubt is gone. On Meet the Press on Sunday, South Carolina GOP Senator Lindsey Graham, who has endorsed Trump, 
dismissed the blood reference and dared Democrats to make it an issue. If you're talking about the language Trump uses rather than trying to fix it, that's a losing strategy for the Biden administration. But Paul Street says Graham wants to bury Trump's links to fascism. Lindsey Graham saying that this isn't going to get you anywhere talking about this is premised on the notion that we can't make real connections between Hitler's rhetoric and, and the Nazi party and Trump. I think we can if we try, but it's up to people to educate Americans about what fascism wasn't. And in local news, Mayor Eric Adams' administration finalized implementation and enforcement of Local Law 97, New York City's Green New Deal for Buildings. But supporters of the law designed to reduce emissions from skyscrapers say the regulations include massive loopholes for the real estate lobby. Eric Weltman is with Food and Water Watch. He says besides a two-year delay in enforcing the law, real estate can opt out. Instead, companies are getting to buy out of their obligations to clean up their buildings by reducing, you know, paying to reduce pollution elsewhere not in New York. So it's a corporate buyout loophole. Passed in 2019, Local Law 97 requires buildings larger than 25,000 square feet to begin limiting climate heating pollution. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. And now our extended interview with Paul Street on Trump and fascism. What I think is a little different here is that he specified Africa and Asia and South America. So if there's any doubt that this was racialized, right? That he was that when he's saying immigrants are poisoning the blood of our country, uh, that, that that's racialized. That doubt uh, is gone. There's another interesting thing that he said in this quote that I've never heard him say before. He said they've poisoned mental institutions and prisons all over the world. Now that also evokes Hitler in really big ways. Now you know Lindsey Graham saying that this isn't going to get you anywhere talking about this is premised on the notion that we can't make real connections between Hitler's rhetoric and, and the Nazi party and Trump. Uh, I think we can if we try, but it's up to uh, the media. It's up to Democratic uh, politicos. It's up to educators and up to, up to people to educate Americans about what, fa- what fascism was. And we're not just talking about mere analogies here. We're not just talking about what well, this is kind of like. We are hearing flat out, straight up Mein Kampf types of things being said when you say shit like they are poisoning the blood uh, of our country. Uh, we have not done a good job of history education in this country. A lot of people don't know about the Holocaust. A lot of people don't know what fascism is. They don't know what fa- they have a hard time recognizing. It. So I think it can work. I think it has to work. I think we must educate people about that. Um, I'm not sure that, that it's not 100% that Graham is wrong if he says this won't, this won't murder Trump. Um, if no one knows what fascism is and no one knows what fascism was, and if they don't have that education, they're missing the context for getting just how incredibly bad this is. Like when Trump calls his enemies vermin. Vermin. This is Hitler rhetoric. Uh, people really have to hit on this. If I was Joe Biden, I would have some time ago had a nationally televised press conference in which I used the F word, fascism, to educate people about it. Where Biden said that this was like fascism. I think he might have even used the words. If you look, and I've never heard the F word used more than it is nowadays, it's almost become commonplace. And, and you know, what liberals like Rachel Maddow, or centrists like Rachel Maddow mean, or Stephanie Rule mean when they say fascism versus what a leftist like me means when I say fascism and how to fight it, might be different things, but the word is getting out there 
I don't see any way around talking about it. This is a very real menace. Fascism and the Holocaust, and we have a situation where we're calling Israel fascist, and people are saying Israel is like a Nazi state. People are saying that all the time now. It is an ethno state. It's cracking down on dissent internally and against its own population, not just Arab population, but Jewish population. It's squelching free speech. It's engaged in a genocidal war that's ethnically and racially specific. It's burying children in rubble. It, there's a dehumanization at the core of this attack of Gaza that reminds people of the Warsaw Ghetto and the Holocaust. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, personally, I think it's a, a valid a valid connection to make. It's very unsettling. It's as if, and this is what the Palestinian Solidarity Movement says, it's what I've said in many demonstrations in Chicago, there seems to be the sense that because of what was done to us, we get to do it again to other people. Never again is supposed to mean never again against anyone, but for the state of Israel and the supporters, it seems to be just never again. It's just about us, and we get in turn to Holocaust others. There's a genocidal logic to fascism, and this war that they're undertaking on these people is genocidal and racially driven and so forth. It's an accurate connection, in my view. I've been doing a lot of research on these boogaloo, and uh, there's a lot of these people in the military. They're all over the place, and they're acting as if they're just individual, like, loners. There's a lot of folks that are ready to take up arms to fight wars of secession and civil wars. I don't know that Trump needs physical violence or a coup to win in 2024 because of Biden's unpopularity right now. But I think after he gets in, with him calling for things like retribution and calling his enemies vermin and saying he wants to deport communists and Marxists and, and all of this kind of stuff, that he's going to activate these people. We may see the violence and the activation of the next wave of fascists uh, after the, the, the violence may come after the election. Then never forget, Hitler at first came in electorally and constitutionally and then activated the real violence afterwards. And this is something that I think we really have to be concerned about. Paul Street is author of This Happened Here, Americans, Neoliberals, and the Trumping of America. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The war against Gaza is expanding to the Red Sea and along the border between Israel and Lebanon. Israel's military says it intercepted six rockets fired from Lebanon and carried out airstrikes in retaliation. Meanwhile, 2,000 miles to the south, Yemen's Houthis say they won't quit firing rockets at ships in the Red Sea, despite a United States Protection Force. The attacks have had a major impact on shipping, with cargo forced to sail thousands of miles out of their way. An IDF spokesperson is Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Cornicus. He says the chances of war with Lebanon are increasing. We are closer today to war than we were yesterday, unfortunately. There's continued Hezbollah aggression. They are playing a very, very dangerous game here. They're threatening to pull Lebanon into the abyss with them. Rania Masri is with the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. She says there's already a war between Israel and Lebanon. Israel is already expanding their massacres. Israel is already you know, violating Syrian airspace and has already attacked Syrian airports several times. Israel is already attacking Lebanon and has already killed more than 100 Lebanese. So from an Israeli perspective, they are already expanding the war outside of Palestinian territory and into Syria and Lebanon. But she adds the Lebanese people remain defiant. We know that all that the Israeli military is capable of is killing and destruction, but they are not capable of a military victory. We see this even in Gaza. 
All that the Israeli military can do is kill and displace and destroy infrastructure, but they cannot claim it as a military victory. And a New York Times Siena poll released on Tuesday says U.S. voters disagree with President Joe Biden's policy in Gaza, especially younger Americans. Three quarters between 18 and 29 oppose the U.S. policy. 44% of Americans, including 59% of Democrats, support a ceasefire. And in more national news, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy formally submitted his resignation from Congress on Tuesday. I hereby submit my resignation, effective on December 31st, 2023 as United States representatives of the 20th District of California. Signed sincerely, Kevin McCarthy, member of Congress. McCarthy was the first speaker ever removed from office by a motion to vacate. He'll be leaving without finishing his term after 16 years in office. The new speaker, Mike Johnson of Louisiana, is a confidant of former President Donald Trump. And in local news, advocates of a bill before the New York City Council to ban solitary confinement at Rikers Island Jail gathered at City Hall today, while Mayor Eric Adams told the media he was considering a veto. So the same violent person that committed a violent act is going to stay in the same population that he committed the violent act until there's a due process. That's the same if someone comes and commit a felonious assault on you. And before the police officer can put them in jail, you need to give them a due process before you can put them in jail. But City Council member Chris Marti, who was at the rally, says solitary is an assault on black and Latino people and recounted his own brother who survived a stint in solitary confinement. Living with him for three years right after that as he slept in my couch, I'll hear nightmares, I'll hear screams, I'll hear him sometimes not being able to go to sleep. That's the trauma that many of our black and brown brothers go through every single day coming out of Rikers Island. Activist Victor Pate spent two years in solitary during 15 years of prison time. He says a person never recovers from the trauma of the experience. But Pate adds, Mayor Adams is going to lose this fight. And whatever he do, we're going to win, no matter what. So I'm really not concerned because we already got guaranteed they're going to vote on the bill on Wednesday, tomorrow. Uh, they're going to pass it, right? And they're going to send it to him. And he's going to sit on it for 30 days and he's going to veto it and they're going to come right back and they're going to override his veto. That's how I see this playing out. Pate says solitary confinement violates every human right. We're talking about international policies, right? We're talking about human rights policies, right? We're talking about uh, the UN resolution um, that is now called the Mandela Rule that says nobody should be held in any long-term solitary confinement, nor should anybody be treated inhumanely. Take it a step further. What about the United States Constitution that so nobody should, no torture should be inflicted upon no one? And in Washington on Tuesday, it was the funeral for the former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the court. Her son Jay remembered finding her report card. It had one B. In the presence of the President, the Supreme Court Justices, and all of you today, I ask you this. Based on her 40-year dedication to promoting the rule of law and democracy in home and, uh, home and abroad, do you think she has earned enough extra credit to raise that lowly B in civics to an A. Sandra Day O'Connor was 93. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And now more from Rania Masri on Lebanon and Israel.
we have already had more than 100 Lebanese killed uh, directly because of Israeli violence committed on Lebanese territory since October 7th. If this were to happen to any other country, I mean, if if you could just imagine if Canada were to start bombing and, and attacking the northern states along its border and killing 100 Americans, and then saying, oh, if the U.S. responds, we will destroy Washington, D.C. and make Washington, D.C. into Gaza, what would the response be? The Israeli leadership specifically is threatening Lebanon into making its capital into Gaza. This is the situation that we're, we're in now. It's, it's no accident. These are deliberate crimes being committed by the Israeli government, by the Israeli military, in order to extend their war out of Palestinian territory and into Lebanese territory. That's something that's happened before. Well, well, yes. I mean, the whole existence of the state of Israel is one that is based on violence and settler colonialism. Every single act of aggression that the Israelis have committed against Lebanese have been their doing, and then they turn around and present themselves as victims, exactly what they're doing in Gaza, pretending that they are the victims while they kill more children than have been killed in any other conflict since 2019 combined. What's the reaction in Lebanon among, because it's a, a, a country with a lot of political factions, of, as we've discussed in the past. Uh, are, the, are people uniting around this, uh, seeing the threat from Israel? I can't say that all the Lebanese are uniting and recognizing that the threat from Israel, because like I said, Lebanon is, is quite divided. But you have at least 50 to 70 percent of the Lebanese are unified behind the Lebanese resistance, they are unified in their recognition of Israel as an existential threat to Lebanon, and they are unified in support of the southern Lebanese. We have a lot of political parties that in the 2006 war were not supportive of the Lebanese resistance, that this time around they have already publicly made their statements that they are in support of the Lebanese resistance. Hezbollah is not the force it was years ago it's from actually it's much stronger yeah it's much stronger than it was in 2006 and if we remember in 2006 although israel did um cause massive destruction throughout southern lebanon and destroyed almost every single bridge within lebanon israel still lost militarily and so we know that all that the israeli military is capable of is killing and destruction but they are not capable of a military victory we see this even in Gaza that the, the, all, all that the Israeli military can do is kill and displace and destroy infrastructure, but they cannot claim it as a military victory. Before even mm-hmm. up to this fighting, this attack on Gaza that occurred, uh, what has been happening in Lebanon? Since 2019, Lebanon has basically been economically bankrupt, which means Lebanon's infrastructure uh, cannot be maintained because the, the government is bankrupt. And I'm talking about financially bankrupt, not politically or morally bankrupt, but financially bankrupt. And that situation has only escalated with massive inflation and massive unemployment and basically the eradication of the middle class in Lebanon. So the the situation within Lebanon, separate from the violence that's constantly um, being threatened by the Israeli government, is already dire. It is already quite problematic, but it, it speaks volumes to people's connections to the land and people's recognition of what it means to be threatened by a settler colonial state. The Israeli threats on Lebanon have not resulted in people protesting against the political parties or people protesting against the Lebanese resistance, but quite the contrary. 
what is the possibility of an expansion? Because already they're sailing into the Red Sea with a new force, supposed to be a coalition of 30 countries, what have you. Is there a possibility of this whole thing? And there's been attacks in Syria as well. Israel yeah. is already expanding their massacres. Israel is already violating Syrian airspace and has already attacked Syrian airports several times. Israel is already attacking Lebanon and has already killed more than 100 Lebanese. So from an Israeli perspective, they are already expanding the war outside of Palestinian territory and into Syria and Lebanon. The only thing that is preventing this from exploding even further has been the massive restraint of the Lebanese resistance and the Lebanese government and the Syrian government. Now, when we look at Yemen, Yemen is behaving like a true freedom fighter by standing in opposition to the criminal use of starvation as a weapon of warfare, which Israel is imposing against Gaza, and basically saying that, look, we will try to sanction Israel as much as we can until at least the Palestinians in Gaza get enough food and medicine. Very basic, you know, so it's actually the Yemenis that are being the freedom fighters here. The question then goes back to who the United States will side with. Will the United States continue to align itself with Israel that has broken numerous national and international laws and continue to be the funder of the Israeli genocide against Palestinians in Gaza and the instigator of regional uh, instability throughout the region as it's doing right now? And if that continues, then the risk for a massive world war can rise and, and can be significant. What President Biden is willing to do and how many millions of lives President Biden is willing to sacrifice. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And from the Stop Solitary Confinement Movement in New York City, we hear from Victor Pate about the move by the City Council to end solitary confinement permanently in New York City, an opposition from New York City Mayor Eric Adams. We have a super majority. We have an overwhelming majority of co-sponsors, and we have enough co-sponsors to override his veto, which is what will happen if he does veto. And we've already got guarantees to that. So, you know, whether he does or whether he does not makes us and me know never mind because they're going to override his veto. So as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing he can do but hold it, which is what he's going to do. Uh, that's my answer to that question. What is and, holding it mean? answer to your... What is holding so it So he has 30 days. He has 30 days to sign or either veto it. Knowing Mayor Adams and his way he operates, he's going to probably hold it for exactly 30 days before he does veto it. Mm. And that's why I mean he's going to hold it because he doesn't have to sign off on it until 30 days. That's his time frame, and I'm quite sure that's what he's going to do. That's vindictive. But as he's I gonna lose, that, it would be vindictive because he would yeah, lose anyway. He's just delaying the loss. And that's, and that's just who he is, you know what I'm saying, in terms of how he operates, you know what I'm saying? Um, and, and, of course, you know, I'm quite sure he, <laughs> he already knows that, you know, if whatever he do, we're going to win, no matter what. So I'm really not concerned because we already got guaranteed they're going to vote on the bill on Wednesday, tomorrow. Uh, they're going to pass it, right? And they're going to send it to him, and he's going to sit on it for 30 days, and he's going to veto it, and they're going to come right back, and they're going to override his veto. That's how I see this playing out. Considering the, uh, I mean, 
Christopher Marty said it. You know, it's not me just saying it. This is this is an issue of race. I mean, because black and brown people are the ones who suffer this. They're not putting white people in in uh, solitary confinement in Rikers Island. And uh, uh, mm -hmm. considering mm -hmm. that, why is there so much resistance to doing some to, to ending something like this, <clears throat> like the war on drugs? All these things that are almost designed to target people of color. Because, like I say, right when you don't understand the mechanisms of how something works, of course you might have a difference in terms of what the purpose of it. See, see, he and most of the correction officers look at this as a way of taking away their ability to discipline people, and that's just not true. The only thing that we are saying and the only thing that the bill addresses is how people are separated from the general population because of behavioral or disciplinary issues. And what we're saying and what the bill is saying, that people should not be placed in isolation for 23 to 24 hours a day, not have psychological issues or behavioral issues addressed that will hopefully give them an opportunity to tr uh, uh, have some type of rehabilitation, but an opportunity for transformation. You can't expect people to address behaviors if you don't have programmatic services in place in order for that to happen. You can't expect a person's disciplinary issue to be addressed by everything just be focused on punitive, punitive, punitive. When does the opportunity for transformation and rehabilitation start? It surely cannot start if the only thing you're doing is putting people in solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. And and here's the other piece of that is that not only putting people in solitary confinement, but you also put people at risk for self-harm, collateral damages psychologically, and people deteriorate in solitary confinement. How does that contribute to safety, number one, of the person, number two, of the people that are employed there, or the safety of facility? The only thing that that does is causes a person to become worse. And that's usually the case that happens when people are just placed in solitary confinement and you just hold them in the cell, you give them no treatment, you give them no services, and people go into solitary confinement that have mental health issues. How does that help? You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul Durienzo. A Colombian entrepreneur has been freed from a United States jail in a prisoner swap with Venezuela. Venezuela's government is freeing at least 20 opposition-linked prisoners and 10 Americans in exchange for the release of Alex Saab, who was arrested in Cape Verde on an Interpol red notice, charged with violating U.S. sanctions against the government of President Nicolas Maduro. According to the international arm of the National Lawyers Guild, Saab was subjected to torture to force him to give up information about sanction busting. And Republicans are calling for President Joe Biden to be removed from state presidential ballots following a Colorado court ruling. Donald Trump is not permitted to be on its ballot next year. The Colorado Supreme Court ruled Trump violated the 14th Amendment, barring public officials from holding federal office if they engaged in insurrection. While President Biden stopped short of endorsing the Colorado court, he agreed the former president had engaged in insurrection. But he certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. And uh, he seems to be doubling down on about everything. 
Trump is far and away in the lead to become the Republican presidential candidate next year. And in New York, the United Nations delayed a ceasefire vote for the third time as diplomats scrambled behind the scenes. A Hamas political chief is in Cairo and Israel proposed a pause in the fighting. In related news, a strike at a refugee camp near Gaza City killed at least 20 Palestinians today. Meanwhile, the United Nations World Food Program says nearly 100% of Gazans are without food. Thousands of people in Rafah have been lining up for food handouts. Human Rights Watch released a report Monday accusing Israel of using starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza, calling it a war crime. A Hamas spokesperson put the blame on President Biden. Your hands are blooded with the bloods of women and children in Gaza, and these, this blood will be a curse that will, will daunt you forever. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken, in his end-of-the-year message, says the U.S. is doing what it can to get aid to Gaza, but insisted Israel has a right to defend itself. There seems to be silence on the, what Hamas could do should do, must do, if we want to uh, end the suffering of innocent men, women, and children. Gaza's government health office says more than 20,000 people have been killed, at least 8,000 children, and 6,200 women are among the dead. In national news, the Department of Justice says Houston-based developer Colony Ridge is a one-stop shop for discriminatory lending in a lawsuit filed today. Colony Ridge operates a 40,000-lot development over 33,000 acres. The government says it offered predatory loans to Hispanic buyers who the developer knew couldn't pay for housing built in a floodplain. Then, when inevitable foreclosures happened, took advantage of the buyers. Colony Ridge completes the scam's life cycle by purchasing the properties back for pennies on the dollar and then reselling them at even higher prices to new unsuspecting borrowers. The company called the lawsuit baseless, outrageous, and inflammatory. Republicans in Texas in separate complaints have claimed the company was providing housing to undocumented persons. And in local news, a coalition of groups supporting the How Many Stops bill before the New York City Council rallied at City Hall today how many stops would require NYPD officers provide data every time they question a person they stop on the street. Mayor Eric Adams says it's a waste of time, but advocates say it's necessary to prevent a return to unconstitutional stop-and-frisk policies. City Council Speaker Adrian Adams supports the law. The NYPD continues to under-report stops and unlawful stops where severe disparities among black and Latino communities persist. Michael Sosiski is the New York Civil Liberty Union's Assistant Director of Policy. Stop and frisk, as people think of it, is actually something called a level three stop. There are two levels of police investigative encounters that can take place below what gets included in stop and frisk data and about which there is currently zero data. He says Adams is shifting cops from major crimes to quality of life offenses. One thing that we've noticed under the Adams administration is a full re-embrace of so-called broken windows policing of officers that are enforcing low-level offenses, um, things like, uh, you know, uh, public consumption of alcohol, public urination, um, being in a park after hours. Those are all offenses that have been on the rise um, where we've seen a dramatic uptick in enforcement. Under former Mayor Michael Bloomberg, the NYPD made millions of stops. A federal court ordered a cease to the practice and appointed a monitor to keep tabs on the cops. Paul Durienzo. New York. And here's more on the No More Stops Act with New York Civil Liberties Union Policy Director Michael Sisitsky. 
How Many Stops Act is a common sense, good government transparency measure that is really about completing the picture of what policing looks like in communities across New York. Um, we have years worth of data on NYPD stop and frisk practices, but that data is only one slice of the number of enforcement and investigative encounters that are actually taking place. Um, and that's because stop and frisk, as people think of it, is actually something called a level three stop. There are two levels of police investigative encounters that can take place below what gets included in stop and frisk data and about which there is currently zero data. So this is about getting a sense of what those interactions look like. Are there disparities? What communities experience them the most? So that we can get a full picture of what investigative activity looks like across the city. Uh, the mayor yesterday or the other day said, uh, forget it. This is too much paperwork for police. They're wasting time. He, he said the time it would take to fulfill this requirement would take literally minutes and hours away from police work. This reporting would take literally seconds. This is something that is so easily accomplishable based on the tools that the department already has. Every officer has issued a smartphone. This is something that can be easily integrated into existing reports that are filled out on officer forms on, uh, forms on officers' phones um, through simple drop-down menus, a few quick taps of filling out some of the information um, required by this form, uh, and that's all that it would take. And this is something that's not just me saying that. There are independent experts that looked at NYPD software platforms as part of the stop and frisk litigation that confirmed that it is really easy to design and implement these systems. This is something that a retired judge who oversaw the joint remedial process, which was a process that emerged from the stop and frisk litigation, had recommended that the NYPD do, saying that it could be easily integrated into their smartphones and accomplished in a matter of seconds. This is a, a really straightforward measure for the NYPD to implement. The issue is they just don't want to. Yeah, the, the, I get the impression that the uh, uh, the police have been going around the court order that they're not supposed to be doing stop and frisks and have been uh, building up the numbers of stop and frisks they've uh, been doing by um, taking advantage of this circumstance. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why this measure is so important. You know, we have report after report from the federal monitor overseeing the reforms that emerged from the stop and frisk litigation that have found repeatedly that the NYPD is not documenting the number of stops that are actually taking place. And that one of the reasons that we think that is happening is because officers are considering this as level one or two interactions and not classifying them as the required uh, stop reports that they are meant to be filling out. Um, and their monitor has also found that there are alarming rates of unconstitutional stops that are still taking place. So stops that are without any legal basis whatsoever. And among all of that, you know, stop and frisk is on the rise again under the Adams administration and the racial disparities are as bad as they have ever been. Um, and so, you know, we need a fuller picture. We need to eliminate the guesswork about which stops are actually required to be reporting, have a comprehensive mandate that all of this information be collected um, and give the public, give lawmakers the oversight tools that they need to then examine those patterns and hold the NYPD accountable to constitutional policing. Now that marijuana has been legalized in New York City, I mean, that was one of the reasons that they got so many 50,000 arrests, I think, a year for marijuana, small amounts of marijuana, because they would do these stop and searches, look in their wallet and find their little nickel bag or something. Uh, have you seen a change in the number of people who are arrested due to stop and frisk because of the marijuana legalization? 
So I think we've seen enforcement just shift to other patterns. Um, so one thing that we've noticed under the Adams administration is a full re-embrace of so-called broken windows policing of officers that are enforcing low-level offenses, um, things like uh, you know uh, public consumption of alcohol, public urination, um, being in a park after hours. Those are all offenses that have been on the rise um, where we've seen a dramatic uptick in enforcement. So it may be that you know they are not having that same tool that they used to use, which was to try to bust New Yorkers for pot, but they're still going after those low-level broken windows offenses um, in ways that are, of course, not even throughout the city. And the data that we're seeing there, it's primarily targeting black and brown communities. Um, and again, it's being uh, all of those encounters, so many of them are being initiated at some of these levels of encounters that we just need more data on to understand those practices and challenge those practices better. Michael Zitsky is the policy director for the New York Civil Liberties Union. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. A shooter killed at least 14 people and wounded 25 others at a university in Prague on Thursday in the deadliest mass shooting in the Czech Republic in decades. The gunman, a 24-year-old man, died by suicide, according to police. He was a student of the Faculty of Arts at Charles University. His name has not been released. And Rudy Giuliani filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy today, just days after a jury awarded two poll workers who sued him for defamation $148 million. The Chapter 11 filing won't help Rudy. Damages and lawsuits are exempt from bankruptcy proceedings. And in international news, Yemen's Houthi government has launched attacks on shipping in the Red Sea that's rerouted a majority of global trade away from the crucial maritime artery. The Red Sea is the approach to the Suez Canal and carries 12% of the world's trade. On Thursday, the Pentagon announced a coalition of the willing to patrol the Red Sea. They've really become bandits along the international highway that is the Red Sea. And so the forces assigned to Operation Prosperity Guardian will serve as a highway patrol of sorts. Yemeni activist Kathar Abdullah says the Houthis are doing what they can to force a ceasefire in Israel's war against Gaza. They're advocating for a ceasefire for humanitarian aid to Israel as the and just using what they can, the levers that they have over the Babylindup Strait. And for the U.S. and other countries to retaliate against them for wanting a ceasefire is just extremely disappointing. Yemen, after eight years of war with Saudi Arabia and the UAE, is now considered the site of the worst humanitarian disaster on the globe. But things are getting worse in Gaza under relentless attack by Israel. More than half a million people in Gaza, a quarter of the population, are starving, according to a report Thursday by the United Nations, eclipsing even the near famines in Afghanistan and Yemen. Sean Casey is with the WHO. He was recently at the El Shifra Hospital in North Gaza. There are only five ambulances working in northern Gaza right now, and patients are self-presenting on donkey carts, on stretchers, being walked down the road. It's incredibly crowded. There are very few staff. In recent days, Israel has allowed a second border crossing to open into Gaza. About 200 truckloads entered on Wednesday, not nearly enough. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby says the United States is doing what it can. We feel that anguish too every single day. And that's why we have worked. We're leading the world in terms of getting humanitarian assistance into Gaza. But journalist Jennifer Lowenstein, who has lived in Gaza, says platitudes aren't enough. The death toll in Gaza isn't tragic. A tragedy is something that you tried to prevent but can't prevent that happens because of circumstances that got out of control. This isn't that. This is deliberate. This is way beyond tragic. 
And the war in Gaza is spreading into Syria, already divided by years of bloody civil war and foreign intervention. In recent days, there have been multiple airstrikes by Israel's air force in Syria and missile launches towards Israel from Syrian territory. Japan's ambassador to the UN spoke on Thursday. The security situation in Syria is already fragile. Israeli airstrikes, including on Syria's international airports, and various military crashes involving ISIL and other Islamic resistance groups. The Security Council then voted to renew the mandate of the UN Disengagement Observer Force, its peacekeeping mission in Syria, for another six months until the end of June in 2024. Ukraine's parliament voted Tuesday to legalize medical marijuana. The reason? The war with Russia has left thousands of people with post-traumatic stress disorder that many believe could be eased by the drug. New York's veteran cannabis advocate Dana Beal is currently in Kyiv. It's wonderful people here want to immediately go to adult use. People have to do things because of the fact there's a war on. Ukraine needs new sources of tax revenue. It passed by 248 votes in the 401-seat parliament. In local news, the city's teachers' union is suing to stop the Adams administration from shaving as much as $2 billion off the local education department budget as part of a long list of spending cuts first announced in September. Teachers' union president Michael Mulgrew. It is not easy to take this step. But it is unprecedented where we are. We have never had an administration try to cut their schools when they have historic reserves and their revenues are all up. And finally, New York City is losing population. Over 100,000 people left the Big Apple in the past year. Mayor Eric Adams addressed the issue today. They want to go to a place where their children can play outdoors, larger green spaces. We want to see animals. You don't, you don't see too many animals but rats in New York. And so... There's a combination of, of things, and we're getting rid of those rats, by the way. The city lost more residents than any other city in the nation. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And now our extended interview with Yemeni activist Kothar Abdullah. What Yemen is doing is just trying to raise awareness and really help and the humanitarian crisis that's happening in, in Gaza. They're advocating for a ceasefire for humanitarian aid to enter Gaza and just using what they can, the levers that they have over the Babylindup Strait. And for the U.S. and other countries to retaliate against them for wanting a ceasefire is just extremely disappointing, especially given the U.S. has backed the Saudi-led coalition against Yemen for more than eight years that has devastated the country. The allegation is that the Houthi government there in in Yemen is uh, Iranian-backed. And the Israeli commentator today really made a point of referring to an evil influence in the region. We have all heard about that Yemen is being controlled by Iran and whatnot, but Yemen is a sovereign state. Uh, There is no power that dictates or controls how they operate. I feel like Iran Jews. We've all heard that the boogeyman in the Middle East is Iran. So when you use Iran as a scarecoat, it's kind of like justifies what the U.S. is doing in the name of countering the boogeyman. Yemenis are independent. They've always have been independent. And they really don't take orders from anyone else outside of Yemen. And it's insulting to assume that they don't have a mind of their own and their own interests and goals. What would be the effect of uh, a United States or some sort of coalition assault 
on Yemen? The U.S. directly striking Yemen will be catastrophic for Yemen. They're still recovering from a more than eight-year war on Yemen. Um, there's still a security-imposed blockade on Yemen. 80% of the Yemeni population rely on aid. They really don't need any more bombs or drones striking on Yemen. It will just further the worst humanitarian crisis of the century. Saudi Arabia has urged restraint, surprisingly, and they went out. They want a de-escalation and step back from the aggression on Yemen. And the fact that the Biden administration continues to support the blockade and to support aggression on Yemen is very disturbing using our tax dollars. The fact that the Saudi Arabia is urging restraint on Yemen, it's bizarre and ironic. And it's scary also to think that at any moment, the U.S. can strike Yemen, and they have said that they reserve the right to. What do you think is going to happen in the next few days? I don't know, honestly, but I would hope for de-escalation. I hope that other Arab countries do the right thing, um, all kind of join in at the bare minimum to advocate for ceasefire in Gaza, to ask, demand the U.S., kind of steps de-escalates the situation. What the Yemeni government is doing right now, it's really just trying to raise awareness about what's happening because other neighboring countries in the region should follow suit and also demand that the U.S. or Israel do not retaliate against the Yemeni government because they are in a very dire situation. I think that the world sometimes forgets that. Yemeni activist Kothar Abdullah. And now we hear more. You're listening to the News Roundup. I'm WBAI. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And now more from journalist Jennifer Lowenstein, who lived in Gaza. The Israelis have bombed hospitals before. Uh, That's not new in itself. And the myth of the tunnels under Shifa Hospital, that was pulled out in 2014 and in 2012 and in 2008. And it's been a myth ever since. It's used. It's a way of I guess, trying to galvanize support in this country. Every time it comes out, it's the same lie. The Israelis knew about it because they built them, built the tunnels in any case. Most major hospitals have tunnels, and there are reasons for that. It's such a lie, and watching the news every day, first of all, it's so awful. I lived in Gaza. I used to go to the Kamal Adwan Hospital and the Shifa Hospital, when I was doing freelance reporting. When I hear about these things, they have a a kind of resonance that probably they don't have with others. Everybody realizes how terrible this is. Different when you've actually been there. I know so many people. This is the first time the Israelis have, have targeted the entire Gaza Strip and decided to destroy the healthcare system. You know, when I see, when I heard that they planted an Israeli flag on top of Shifa Hospital, my first thought was, my God, the IDF must be really desperate. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's a horrible thing in and of itself because people are sheltering in the hospital and people are wounded and and dying in the hospitals. And there's the the great IDF uh, invading the hospital and, you know, prowling around its hallways. It's it's like a, a rape. I mean, it's, it's such a terrible thing that they've done to all these, to the medical system there. 
And then I, I assume you heard about the reports from a couple of days ago that an Israeli bulldozer bulldozed over people sleeping in tents outside of, of Kamal One Hospital in the north. What do you think the purpose of these uh, determined attacks on these uh, medical facilities is? Well, if you destroy the entire medical system of a society, you've, you've really destroyed a good part of the society. I mean, there's no place for these people to go when, it, when you know, first of all, in the north, for people who are still there. In the south, the hospitals are, you know, running out of supplies, partly damaged, overflowing with wounded uh, lacking medical supplies, you know, what? that's a, a pillar of any society is the healthcare system. Without that and without food and electricity and water, you're making the place uninhabitable. And that's basically North Gaza has now become uninhabitable. South Gaza is close to it because you've got 1.9 million people taking refuge in a town that's, you know, maybe half the size of Tucson. I just, it, it's mind-boggling to me. It's just mind-boggling. I think there's no question in my mind that this was never about Hamas. Hamas was a gift to the Israelis. If, if they're honest, they would look at October 7th and see, see it as a gift. Aha, now we have an excuse to go into the Gaza Strip and destroy it from, from north to south and east to west. That's what they're doing. And I still think there's a there's a great desire to push the, the population into the Sinai. I'm not convinced it won't happen. What are the options now? What are the 1.9 people in the South going to do? Where are they going to live? What's about the U.S. role in this? I saw Biden on a clip uh, on CNN last night saying when somebody shouted to him something about the death toll in Gaza, <laughs> his response was it was tragic. And to me, that is that's just grotesque. The death toll in Gaza isn't tragic because a tragedy is something that you tried to prevent but can't prevent that happens because of circumstances that got out of control. This isn't that. This is deliberate. This is way beyond tragic. This is, I mean, appalling. Mm. The words that come to my mind aren't strong enough. They're hiding behind the civilians. That's the other thing they say. I'm always amazed at how people assume the population of Gaza are just, you know, a bunch of ignorant rabble. I mean, do you think they would stand for having a Hamas fighter keep them all hostage and use them as human shields? That's just another excuse to keep killing civilians. The United Nations approved a motion to increase aid to civilians in Gaza today, but fell short of a call for a ceasefire in the 77-day-long war. The result of the vote is as follows, 13 votes in favor, zero votes against, two abstentions. The draft resolution has been adopted. The resolution comes after days of behind-the-scenes diplomacy and a threat of the United States veto as Israel is widening its ground offensive in Gaza. The vote also comes after Hamas laid out its most detailed account of motivations for the October 7th attack on Israel and a call for elections to unite the administration of Gaza and the West Bank. The New York Times reports Friday Israel used at least two 2,000-pound bombs during airstrikes on Jabalia refugee camp north of Gaza City. Hundreds of civilians were killed and injured, according to hospital officials. The New York Times says the IDF claimed the strike killed a Hamas commander, but footage of the attack showed the target was in fact the refugee camp.
Following the United Nations vote, Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke. The real problem is that the way Israel is conducting these offensives is creating massive obstacles to the distribution of humanitarian aid inside Gaza. And Palestinian ambassador Riyad Mansour fought back tears as he recounted how a 12-year-old girl severely injured an orphan during an Israeli attack was killed in another strike. All killed an Israeli shilling over her house. She also lost her leg. And Donia said that while she will never forget her loved ones, she has to continue living that she would become a doctor to help children as doctors helped her. But Dunya did not live to become a doctor or to memorialize her family. She was killed a few days ago, later. The vote on the motion to increase UN aid to Gaza had been delayed at least three times by behind-the-scenes politicking. The story was that the United States, on behalf of Israel, wanted to ensure there was no call for a ceasefire. Russia's ambassador, Vasily Nebenzia, took note. The council would essentially be giving the Israeli armed forces complete freedom of movement for further clearing of the Gaza Strip. And anyone who votes in favor of the text as it is currently worded would bear responsibility for that, essentially becoming complicit in the destruction of Gaza. United States Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield hit back. I'm not going to respond to Russia's rant, uh, a country that has also uh, created conditions uh, that they are complaining about now in their unprovoked war in Ukraine. Thomas Greenfield went on to insist the United States was in the forefront of humanitarian aid to Gaza. To push for the protection of innocent civilians and humanitarian workers and to work towards a lasting peace. Today's vote bolster, bolsters those efforts and lends support to our direct diplomacy. The United States and Russia both abstained from Friday's motion. The United States had earlier vetoed a UN resolution calling for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. There may not be much change on the ground, though. Israel says it's not giving up its onerous rules on how trucks can enter Gaza. Security inspections of aid will not change. Israel will not permit the regrouping and rearming of Hamas as the atrocities of October 7th can never be allowed to repeat themselves. More than 20,000 have been killed by Israel in Gaza, about 70% children and women, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. More than 50,000 have been injured, thousands more missing, believed under the rubble of the destroyed city. More than 40,000 buildings have been damaged or destroyed. In local news, New York City Mayor Eric Adams and New York City Department of Buildings Commissioner Jimmy Odo today took down New York City's longest standing sidewalk shed at 409 Edgecombe Avenue, a city landmark which had been up for 21 years. The city filed a criminal court case against the building's property managers for their repeated failure to repair the building. It's part of the city's Get Sheds Down program. For far too long, these sheds have been on our city streets. We hear the concerns about them over and over again, and it's just excellent to see the longest run coming down, and we want to continue not to break those records again of having a shed up for 21 years. The building was an important site for black political organizing, home to the NAACP and its executive secretaries, Walter White and Roy Wilkins, as well as W.E.B. Du Bois and Thurgood Marshall. 
The shed was first erected in 2002. An engineer hired at the time by the owners found unsafe conditions around the brick and terracotta stone facade. Paul Durienzo, New York. Happy holidays to you and all your loved ones from the staff and crew at WBAI.